Talking to people about making it work. Hello, this is Charlie and Freya, and you're listening to Fanfara Tetete, an ongoing series of conversations from Fanfara. At the moment, focusing on creative practice and how people make it work within the creative field. So far, we've spoken to Payam from Slavs and Tatars, based in Eurasia, and Asan Karol of Manifold Press, based in Istanbul. And uh, this time, we're going to be talking to Louis Schultz from the London-based architecture collective Assemble. Yeah, so Assemble is uh, perhaps a bit of a difficult one to define in one sentence, which is also something that we come by when we look into the existing interviews and talks by assemble or about assemble to assist here i mean when you go to the about section of assemble it reads that assemble is a multidisciplinary collective working across architecture design and art and they were founded in 2010 and perhaps something that was quite prominent in their existence was the winning of the Turner Prize in 2015, which is, I believe, the first time that it was given to a collective and also to a collective which was not directly connected or defined as being artists, which is something that we that we address and talk with Louise about in the conversation in different ways. But to make it a bit short, first of all, perhaps it's interesting to mention that while we initiate these tete-a-tete conversations with the curiosity and interest in addressing ways that people make it work, but also obstacles and um, yeah, obstacles in different ways. It's striking how a lot of material about assemble and by assemble is dealing with this theme of organization and sustainability and financial models in a corporation. And that also has a bit of an influence on the way in which we talk with Louis because we were actually, I think, challenged in asking different kinds of questions in order not just to repeat what was on which is already found in places such as It's Nice That and also uh, the Canadian Centre of Architecture, which have interesting recordings with Assemble. Yeah. And um, yeah, and Charlie agrees. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, shortly, I mean, we, the, the conversation really goes in many different directions. And I think now looking back at it, we could talk about many different things as well. There's um, talk about this self-promotion and publicity or like kind of awareness of intellectual property existing around a sample that also goes on to a more in-depth conversation on scalability or the potential scalability of their model and then we go into talking about their way of working and how that is very connected to a physical presence which is of course meeting some struggle and challenges in the current moment of restrictions due to COVID. But something that is really, I think, very interesting in this talk, not that all of it wasn't, is this aspect of scalability of their model. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, it comes back to this big moment for them in 2015 when they win the Turner Prize, for me anyway. And I, I think it, it, it sort of shines a light quite heavily on just the uh, nature of kind of being a collective within uh, the architecture field, but also within art in general. They, they have quite a lot of um, suddenly responsibility to sort of evangelize for this model they do it pretty well but like uh i'm just going to stick a pin in that because i wanted to actually talk about granby four streets and like it yeah. is a pretty interesting because we don't talk about it in the conversation that's true right? and it's a quite it gives a quite good insight to their way of working or perhaps a way that was established with that project for them to work yeah yeah, yeah i mean i it's definitely like it's like present in all of that work this notion of sort of like harnessing people's cooperation and collaboration and making do with uh, less maybe financial resources by kind of uh, using people's capacities to contribute to something that they care about or yeah something like that yeah um and yeah it was quite striking i at the time winning the turner prize in this moment where like housing was increasingly like a big problem uh in the uk and in general yeah you know sort of rapid gentrification in various places and development becoming a kind of um, big very present problem mm -hmm. uh, but anyway um no i think it, you're right it's 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 relevant to mention especially because we did not spend time on circling around these um otherwise very famous projects mm -hmm. of theirs and yeah it's dragging how the relevance of play and interaction and organization is is elements or units that they activate in a lot of their projects and in that way it's interesting how process and activation and access to tools and these elements often are part of the end goal so it's not this idea of a of a finished building or shape yeah just coming back to this um the the Turner Prize kind of like gives them this uh, exposure and I think suddenly a lot of people are very very curious about like how does this actually work because you know normally the Turner Prize is a single person winning and like normally like uh, uh, architecture practices have like a principal or a couple of people who are like the leading lights and there isn't really this acknowledgement of um, the the sort of uh, everybody involved having kind of a legitimacy and this enters into this question of like uh, uh, the the nature of collectives, but um, you know how they function. Um, it, it it in the coverage of it, it's very much like seems like an alien concept. But as the conversation attests, like we asked Louis about this, um, there are so many examples of organisations run on collective principles that are self sustaining. You know, and I think too often we do have this assumption that maybe collectives are these things that are quite loose and you know they don't really last forever and you know people go off in their separate ways and there is something about assemble that and and the other examples that louis gives that show that there is a, a long history of experiments successful experiments that still exist of collectives kind of becoming i guess more formally cooperatives where they mm -hmm. are sort of run by the codified principles of co-ops which you can look up and that you know like everybody has a, a decision-making role and maybe there are sort of separate roles within that but like yeah it, it's a nice i i mean uh, assemble in general but then also the other examples that we discussed like 
it's a nice um, thing to remind of, you know, that some of these things that you might start that are just, you know, a bunch of mates that want to do something for a temporary period of time uh, and sort of take shared credit, they can develop into these things that have a huge impact mm -hmm. and, um, you know, actually eliminate some of the problems of hierarchy in so far as, you know, there is this sort of problem of power within hierarchies of certain people taking credit for other people's stuff certain people taking all the profit and yeah for other people's work and stealing the ideas of people who are under them no but it's quite interesting because i think we also in our previous talks tend to touch on this format of various collaborative models also in the previous talk with slavs and tatars for instance which in some ways have few similarities also very many differences mm -hmm. um but in both cases there's this um, example of something that started as a project that was not intended to become a long-term sustainable practice i do think that it's relevant perhaps before we end and give the word over to louis to shortly touch on the what was also a final part of the conversation that was more focusing on the current moment that we're in now because as already mentioned the practice of assemble uh, of course have like other practices bumped into um, change and challenge mm -hmm. and it's interesting that assemble it grows out of um, the previous crisis. A previous crisis, yeah, in 2010. And that, speaking of space, creating space, um, that is such an essential part of their um, beginning projects. And then it's interesting that we find ourselves yet again in a moment where there's, there is a crisis and one can only speculate on how things mm. turn out. Anyway, maybe we've given too much away already, so let's um, introduce the full conversation with Louis. Yeah, and let Louis perhaps start off by introducing Assemble, or at least the meaning of Assemble. But I, yeah, I, I had this... Um, thought about just the meaning of assemble i suppose like what was in the name what made you decide to call yourselves that and whether or not i don't know you've like grown into the name or whether it's become a little bit kind of worn out by now like if it kind of has changed in its meaning do you still like it i think names are weird aren't they at first they always sound like really weird and then just get used to it and then rather than the name like having any meaning it just means the thing that it is so I guess we don't really spend a lot of time really thinking about the name <laughs> anymore. But it was, yeah, it was supposed to be quite generic. Yeah, and it's funny because it's obviously become like a brand or something. But it was supposed to be kind of invisible as well. I mean, we only, you know, we only set up like a company and stuff because we had to set something up. We had to set up like a legal entity in order to receive funding for the Folly for a Flyover. So it was like, well, if we're going to set up a company, we have to have a name kind of thing. Um, rather than this is our new collective and it's going to be amazing and it's going to last for 10 years and this is what it's going to be called and this is what it means. We were kind of already doing the work and 
we were just put in a position where we had to have a thing that had a name. <laughs> um, you know, I guess the meaning's quite obvious. It's not like there's no there's a kind of hidden secret meaning behind it. It's just about it's about yeah making things and bringing people together. I don't. I think I don't think anyone's like embarrassed by it uh, these days. <laughs> I don't know what we would call it. I don't know if much thought's been given to what we would call ourselves now if we if we had another crack at the whip. I guess it can also be quite a process to find a name, especially the more people you are in the <laughs> in the selection process. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for behind Fanfara, there yeah. was um, I think two or three hundred other uh, short wow. ideas because we in the end just just counted all of them. Actually, made a small print out of it because it was just, um, such a mm -hmm. long long process. Anyhow, looking, I'm researching, reading up on, on Assemble, having, I can imagine having received the Turner Prize and having been suddenly, although not necessarily defining yourself as artists, having been put in that context, we did wonder how much do you think that have an um, influence on your continued work and also on the continued or the following um, formation of Assemble? For the past, I guess now five years. Yeah, it was 2015, I think. Yeah, wasn't it? So yeah, it was about five years. Yeah, I think that um, it's always been a bit of a funny one because I guess the way that we always approached architecture was in some sense quite, I don't know, like how an artist might approach it sometimes, especially projects like Yard House or whatever, like the kind of like making of, you know, materials and things like that. That thing of the care for the object or something that where you spend a long time crafting a piece. I think that, that that's something that we have kind of always done. But I guess before the Turner Prize thing happened, it wasn't really like a conversation that we needed to have like well is this art are we artists what is this process is it more art or more architecture you know but after that people started asking us so do you consider yourselves artists i don't know what 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 meaning comes of that i mean from a business perspective you know we sometimes say like well maybe we should like be in the art world you know there seems to be money to be made or something but it's really not we're just not really like um set up to do it uh and we don't really understand it <laughs> to be honest i was just thinking about like um i mean there's there is like a, a progeny for collectives in architecture right it was more of a maybe big thing in like the 1970s you had like archigram and super studio and that kind of thing like um i think anyway um my i'm i'm sort of like speaking off the top of my head here but um i was thinking about like obviously it's quite uh Uh, uh, like more of a thing in creative work in art in the art world to sort of like come together and have like art artist-led spaces but maybe the I guess the the problem or m maybe the like tension in architecture versus like art collectivity is that you're working in terms of like scale there's there's just like maybe more complexity involved potentially in in like an architectural project and also a kind of difficulty in I suppose sharing out jobs and tasks and and like opportunities and that kind of thing I don't know if like maybe you want to comment on that but like I guess to sort of reformulate it into a question is like have you found that the problem of I guess sharing credit distributing profits and that kind of thing like I guess harder as an architectural practice than it would have been if you were just artists 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about like art collectives, but to me, like the art world seems very individualistic because you can actually, you can almost, with an architecture practice, I think it's understood that Norman Foster doesn't do all of the work. Whereas like people think that Tracy Emin probably does do all of the work, even though, I mean, she doesn't have as big a people behind her as Norman Foster by any sense. She probably only has like four or five, 10 people. I don't know. I, I really don't know. But like, you know, it's still a company. She's like this figurehead. Um, and so, yeah, so I guess I feel like art definitely feels very individualistic um, in terms of the way that it's like marketed. Um, conceptually speaking, it kind of makes sense that in architecture, like a collective makes sense because you need more people in order to execute a project. So you need quite a lot of people. And yeah, as you mentioned, it was a kind of thing in, in the 70s, like um, people you mentioned, people like Matrix. We're quite you know interested in this because we do a lot of work um, to develop our organisational structure. But there are people like Kulinan Studio. I don't know if you've heard of them. They have been doing a similar thing to what we are trying to do for years, where um, it's basically a partnership structure where everybody is, you know, a partner and given an equal equal say in the running of the practice. And there's also a, a mechanical and electrical engineer called Max Fordham as well that works in a similar way. And Max Fordham's quite big actually, and so they have, you know, they have like full time cleaners who are partners as well. And so, yeah, so we, you know, in terms of our collective organisation, we very much look up to them. And yeah, you know, we do look at the kind of cooperative movement of the 1970s as something to be emulated. It's also something that's not, it's not by any means dead, you know, there's huge firms like John Lewis or like, um, the one in the Basque country, I forgot the name of. It's like yeah, the biggest co-op. Co something corporation? Or... Mondragon. It's called yeah. Mondragon. It's like supermarkets and various, like, uh, I don't know, like farms and things like that, is it? Uh, the Mondragon Corporation? Yeah, I thought they were kind of manufacturing as well. I know they oh, okay. started off making guns. Is it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, you know, it, it's... it's um, it's a way of um, organising things that um, basically, you know, puts the people first. And, yeah, we just think that's really important. I don't know if I started going off on a bit of a tangent now, but... No, it's all right. It's all right. It's, it's all good. I, I wanted to pick at this a little bit more with... Um, I don't know if you've read any of the books of Ursula Le Guin. The um, one I'm thinking about in particular is The Dispossessed. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it, yeah, but I haven't, I haven't got around to reading it yet. It's really, it's a great piece of world building. I mean, it's not like the most like thrilling plots, I suppose, but basically I'll try and like abridge it so that I don't go on about it, but because there's a point here. <laughs> so it's like, what if um, a kind of anarchist revolution was able to like go to the moon and set up a society that was basically run upon like collective cooperative principles. And like, it's quite interesting because it's sort of the consummation of like the world that we're, I guess, interested in ourselves right like things being mm -hmm. run more collectively and it sort of goes beyond that and says okay like what if there was no money that kind of thing if everything was kind of collectivized mm. still there would be this problem of hierarchy insofar as mm. sharing credit for things and sharing kind of yeah, yeah. esteem and fame i suppose like mm. you you have influence because you're you know someone that's known you have like currency because you're 
more experience in a field, that kind of thing. And that gives you power. I was just wondering, like, I guess in relation to Assemble, it's the main example people turn to as like, uh, or not maybe the main, but one of the main examples of like a, a quite interesting collective experiment in architecture and of sort of collective opportunities within the Assemble Collective, I suppose. Do you think like it's scalable to other people and whether or not actually like almost that, I guess, has Assemble been, is it sort of like the only one that was allowed through and it won't be repeatable? I think, well, I guess there's a couple of points because you mentioned it before, the thing about sharing credit. I guess I, I wanted to say that like actually... Funnily enough, that's something that's not and has never caused tension within really? the practice. Yeah, because um, it kind of is just beneficial for everybody. And like, not that this has ever been suggested, but even if you were to think, oh, such and such is a freeloader, you know, I don't know, like, it wouldn't really matter because at the end of the day, as long as there's like enough people producing good work, you can call that your own because obviously we don't work on all the projects. In fact, you know, we only work on a small number of, of, of projects that we do, whereas we can go out and basically claim all of that work as our own work because it is the work of the collective, you know, not that I'd lie and say I worked on a project, but like, you know, it kind of goes without saying that, you know, as a member of the collective, I'm responsible for all of that work to some extent. So that's, that's what I think that's one of the biggest benefits of it, actually, um, you know, is that breadth of work that you can kind of share the the responsibility for from a kind of outside perspective. And then the other point about I just I've always felt like what we're doing, it's not it's not that interesting, <laughs> like in terms of like the organisation, what the work, I don't know, whatever, like people can say what they want about the work, but. In terms of the organisation, like as you kind of alluded to, these kind of experiments have been done in the past. There's things that are ongoing currently. In many ways, how different are we really from a professional services firm where of lawyers, where like there's a bunch of partners? You know, maybe because we we have the idea that staff will become partners quite quickly and get a say. And apart from that, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that is a key thing, you know, that that kind of democratic principle. But again, you know, people are doing it. You know, we're not the only ones who are working like that. It is rare. Sadly, it is very rare. Um, but it did remind me of um, I mean, we previously spoke to Slavs and Tatars and to what Slavs and Tatars. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah, I've I was. Yeah. I would be happy not to be the one having to explain what they are because it was kind of a bit there was without wanting to compare, there were some similarities in terms of it actually consisting of a group of people that were not at all intending to become uh, or be associated with the arts necessarily. They come from a background of graphic designers and... Um, Publishers and stuff like that. Right? Yeah. Was yeah. It was a reading group. I think it started as a reading group. Yeah. And, and when speaking with nice. them, we were also quite interested in... in uh, we were talking, somehow the conversation also went around... The fact that they've managed pretty well to stay working with as a collective name. Like it's never really relevant who the people are or to mention specific mm. names and some kind of a, a, I don't know, similar situation there. And it's interesting that uh, collective groups within or that can be associated with the autistic sphere, which actually are not having backgrounds of, of being artists, but perhaps coming from different other mm. disciplines where um, 
yeah, where collaboration is a necessity, perhaps mm -hmm. you could say. But besides, like coming back to what you mentioned before, so Charlie, in terms of um, that this collaborative model and organization is actually not, like it's not that it's new. However, it is interesting how often we come by almost all the conversations that we've listened to from Assemble somehow deals with or people are eager to hear you explain. Yeah, really or, fascinated by yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's interesting because this is actually, we've had this drive to initiate these conversations because we think it's often not addressed enough how like your sustainable financial model and also the relevance of your local surroundings or the obstacles that you bump into. However, in, in the case with, with, with researching for this conversation, that is all around. So we had to come up with some new questions. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't want to just like become yet another, um, I don't know, like repetition of that. Um, <laughs> but I love talking about it. Don't worry. Like, uh, I, you know, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> the whole organizational thing is it's that's, you know, that's my kind of, When I'm I'm one I've, it's one of my key interests so because <laughs> then it is interesting to think about to what extent you as a sample are aware about your like self-promotion or the the publicity that you create like kind of the story that's that defines you yeah and perhaps also saying that with having in mind that you also have your upcoming publication on collaboration collaboration yeah yeah, yeah we do yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, it's certainly not been. I guess it's 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 never been something that we we never kind of thought like, well, people will want to work with us because because we're like this. It was just um, I don't know. It just came out of what what we were, you know, what we are. It was just it was just a simple kind of description of you know we were just a group of people that kind of came together, you know, a group of friends that kind of came together to do these one-off projects, which was the Cinerodium and the Folly, and so you know there was never an idea to set up a practice or anything like that at that time and so it was kind of inevitably this collective thing because there wasn't a singular kind of vision behind it I suppose but yeah I mean it's it's kind of evolved and I think like yeah maybe the like you know maybe the fact that we called ourselves a collective you know from very early on then made us start thinking, oh, well, what, you know, what do we have to do to be a collective? Just one thing now that I mentioned, the upcoming first publication, is that something that you've thought further about the fact that you're also somehow entering the publishing field? Yeah, well, again, you know, the way that these things happen within Assemble um, is that it's because somebody within Assemble, it's the kind of work that they want to do, you know, in many ways, assemble as an organization or as an institution is set up to um you know to provide a platform for, for people to do the kind of work that they want to do whatever that may be and obviously it's easier for us to do certain types of work because that's the type of work that comes through the door you know but jane is really keen to do publishing and books and stuff and so that's why she's you know she obviously released the women in architecture breaking ground book and then she's doing another book with fiden and then she's kind of leading on the assemble book as well i guess it's something that's been kind of like a sort of background idea for some time especially with like the 10th anniversary coming up and stuff it's like oh maybe we should do a book kind of thing <laughs> you know but um it's really because jane was really keen to kind of commit her time to it that it's kind of come about and 
yeah, I guess we'll see how that goes as to, you know, whether we keep doing stuff like that. But it would be really nice, you know. Observing quite a lot of your projects, such as the Black Holes Workshop, um, it's and also playgrounds and such, it's often that many of the projects are dependent on interaction and activity from people and sometimes or often it's uh, yeah it's the construction or the play which is also the goal and the essential part which leads me to yeah a bit of a consideration of how you observe that um, those kind of works in this current moment that we're in now where um, interaction, physical interaction especially, is so limited. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine that, for instance, uh, in workshop context as such, that this inclusion of um, organizational models that involve people is very difficult and perhaps limiting to activate at the moment. How do you encounter that influencing the work of Assemble at the moment? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a massive challenge. Um, we're trying to do a project at the moment in Spitalfields, which is this old house um, that's been given to charity that we are trying to basically create a centre for land and housing justice. But in order to create a like institution like that, you need to bring people together. It's not something that you can kind of just... Well, I guess you could just kind of create it from your own mind but like that's not I don't know we don't think that's a kind of fair and equitable way of working on these kind of projects if we're trying to create a place which is about bringing democracy and fairness to land and buildings then just deciding what this thing's going to be this building is going to be is is not really kind of practicing what we preach or like what the thing's all about so it's really hard yeah I mean I, I don't know like there's no real answers to it other than like wait for it to be over we deal in space you know we deal in like physical visceral things and like it, it the whole point of it is that you can't put it online you can't recreate it it's impossible yeah it's hard I mean I guess it's, it's worth saying though that the other side of it is like um we also run a number of studio buildings where our, where our office is and we have a couple of other sites as well and they're spaces where you have fabricators carpenters musicians people making clothes so all sorts of different types of practitioners and I guess what's interesting is that those projects people are still going into work and using the space because they don't have any other choice because you can't recreate those things online that the kind of equipment that they have you know it's obviously it's, it sounds obvious to say it but you, you can't that can't move online and so much of that has, has kind of remained fully open as per you know legal requirements and stuff but yeah I mean I definitely don't personally like I definitely don't see an end to bringing people together I think it's something that will absolutely like come back after this is all all over but yeah, I mean, we're trying to deal with it as best we can. And with this Spitalfields project, just 
just slowing it down, not trying to do it too quickly. Luckily, the client, the owner of this charity, they're you know they're super amazing, so they're they're really um, understanding about it, and yeah, just slow things down, do what we can, and yeah, and obviously do stuff online as well where it's practical. Because yeah, I, I guess like the the essence of collaboration, being collective, co- cooperation, it is very spatial, isn't it? But it can also I don't know if like online really is a substitute. I'm just thinking about our, like um, we have kind of um, uh, I'm talking about failed architecture now, like I'm um, working with people in New York and with people in Bogota as well. Um, in a way, actually going online has kind of like facilitated a kind of different way of thinking like that there is like new possibilities and stuff like that. But like, you know, there, there is a certain I, I don't know, it sounds a little bit like buzzwordy, but like the sort of network <laughs> effect, I guess, or, you know, where there's a sort of like greater than the sum of its parts thing of like being present in a space and seeing what people are doing and like idle chit chat, like ideas coming from that. Anyway, I, uh, I'm thinking, as I say this, I'm thinking about, I think your colleague, Joe, is there a Joe? Mm-hmm. Joe, yeah. Joe Halligan, yeah. Uh, he was talking about, for this talk he was giving for, it's nice that it's um, talking about the uh, Cinerolium and the sort of original experience there that like you were all there, right? Like, and there was this sort of like combined effort, you know, and y- you were kind of making do with, again, like the value that exists without financial value. Of course, you had to get some money, but basically it was like, okay, how can we fill these gaps that have been created by the crisis right like uh, the financial crisis so i'm wondering how important was the economic crisis in a way in sort of driving assemble in the first place like do you think that if you had all uh, been leaving university with loads of opportunities would it have emerged in the same way? Yeah, I suppose it's funny because I think that the financial crisis, it, it only really forms part of the narrative with regard to the Cinerolium. I think because then immediately afterwards, it just becomes about the kind of red hot London property market and in particular um, the Olympics as well. So like... Yeah, so we did the Cinerolium in 2010, and that was kind of done on a shoestring. But then the Folly was done on a shoestring as well, but less of a shoestring. <laughs> uh, but the Cinerolium, sorry, the, the Folly site was basically we got that through the Olympics. It was because of the Olympics that that site became available for that kind of purpose, and that people were kind of looking over there, uh, you know, cultured people. <laughs> and then soon after that, we also got our first studio building which was sugar house the original sugar house in stratford which was also owned by the originally it was owned by the olympic delivery authority or the olympic legacy company i can't can't remember but it was it was it was all it was it was basically through the olympic people that we got that that there were these buildings available you know they've been bought up by the gla or whoever and they kind of just didn't know what to do with them and they we were kind of like some culture that could be like sprinkled in the area um but but for us it was massive because it was like this building that we could use for events as a workshop and stuff like that and yard house as well you know that was olympic money as well it was a grant that we applied for via the olympics so yeah i think that kind of 
formed more of a narrative and then also the in terms of the property market after that we were able to stay in that building because it was owned by a the development arm of ikea who were doing this huge large-scale residential led development there and the same with our current office as well it's like a it's kind of one of these temporary development sites so i think we've kind of managed to like ride that horse and we got very lucky with that kind of timing um and and also i guess being interested in those kinds of buildings and trying to like make the most out of a place that's freezing cold and you know yeah and just derelict kind of thing um yeah like we used to have like our first office within that building was this tiny room with like eight heat lamps like massive heat lamps kind of just shining at this like one small desk <laughs> and we always, we never used to meet people there we always used to meet people at this like coffee shop up the road because we were too embarrassed <laughs> it's kind of funny hearing that because like, the origin of Fanfara was also by being really lucky and getting onto some kind of taking over business um, places before they were sold. And I think there was a kind of a similar sprinkling some culture because it, they quickly figured out this housing agency that when we moved in and we made exhibitions and we made this, we shined up the space, then it got sold way quicker. But it also resulted, it had a huge influence on the way in which we were working. I think, like, first of all, the necessary adaptability I guess, uh, yeah, also in ways of thinking about how then to set up the space or how to organize anything when you don't have any heat and it's minus degrees or when you don't have any lights, for instance, which then becomes an, um, a framework to work with somehow. To what extent do you think the conditions of your accessibility to space or perhaps also the lack that those spaces had, to what extent do you think that has had an influence on your work or on the way in which you also are organizing yourself? Well, I suppose, I don't know, because it's hard to imagine Assemble emerging from working out of like a normal office. It kind of like doesn't make any sense, I suppose, just because, you know, our, our practice is so hands on and like focused on craft and stuff like that. It's without some kind of way of creating something physical, some space to do that. It's just difficult to imagine what, you know, if we had just had like an office in the West End or something, what kind of work we'd be creating. I, I really, I really don't know. Even though, you know, even though the majority of our work probably could have been done in that context, even if you wanted to make something, you could have hired a space separately. We probably could have actually achieved a lot of what we have done without that space, really. But it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. If, if if we knew that's what we wanted to achieve kind of thing, but it's hard to imagine it really coming out of that kind of context. Well, I, I had like this one last thing I wanted to kind of ask, I guess, again, about the crisis. Basically, just like, uh, you know, I was sort of setting it up, thinking the how much, in a way, the, the that early 2010s moment did entail like a little bit of uh, wiggle room for young architects or young collectives to sort of do something different because there wasn't so much uh, immediate economic opportunities. Now it's worse, I feel like. I've got a younger brother who's like 22 and it feels worse talking to him, right? I mean... I guess, have you got any kind of comments? I, it sounds a bit cheesy to be like, you know, uh, what 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 would you advise to a young person or something like that? But, you know, like, wh like what would you do, I guess, like in this uh, context if you were 22? Yeah, it's quite interesting because when I'm asked by students, well, how did you guys start it? I, I always have to tell them about the whole Olympic thing. And I'm like, to be honest, we just got really lucky on this thing that happened to be in our local area and one or two people were working at 
practices that were kind of involved in it and it was through those and then through those connections that we managed to get that space you know and and yeah and if it hadn't been for that we may have not gone anywhere i don't know it's hard to say so just get lucky i suppose is the uh... but that's what i mean <laughs> it's it, it's difficult because you, that's what you have to say to people you know i don't know what you would do outside of looking at the opportunities that you've got i guess we've always been quite yeah quite opportunist in that sense you can't there's no like winning formula but i'd say what's good about now is that like there will be those opportunities it's not like normal times when everything's just sewn up it feels like yeah the whole empty office thing it's an obvious thing that everyone's talking about but maybe there's some reality to it maybe there are empty offices or there will be these empty offices coming up and that's a kind of relief valve for the rest of the city all those things that kind of want to happen but can't happen because this just relentless i mean i'm talking about london maybe in other places it's similar this just kind of like relentless river of like capital and gentrification constantly pummeling you from every angle (laughs) so that kind of can hold up for a second then suddenly yeah there might be opportunities to you know people will maybe there'll be spaces for for people to use i don't know yeah i don't know fairly obvious point i don't know but uh, yeah i don't really know what else to say than that i just i I read recently that the population of london went down by seven hundred thousand uh since the crisis so i i feel like a lot of the cool things that i look at in say amsterdam and and berlin and new york and london you know like i i kind of look with sort of slightly rose-tinted spectacles back at those times and the thing is that those cities were less populated and there was more space so you could say that that yeah Yeah. maybe maybe i think i think population is such a key point london's population basically was declining until the 80s and then it's like slowly been increasing and it's just these big that you know deindustrialization and like the olympics was like one small part of it but the olympics was part of the process of deindustrialization and that is why that space was available because of this huge kind of western world scale process that was happening and that process seems to be kind of coming to an end now and so yeah i don't know i don't know what the next thing is <laughs> but yeah i mean if if the population decreases then that could be could be a good thing yeah even for all the negative reasons of what has happened obviously like brexit and you know it's very sad hi there nice to have you still with us uh, so when recording the intro we ended up having a conversation about the merits of hierarchical and non-hierarchical or I guess, uh, anarchic organisations. It was too long for the intro, but we figured if you've got this far, maybe you're down for 10, 15 minutes more of that. It is tempting, I think, to challenge the perhaps critical connotation that hierarchy then tends to get in this conversation because... Don't you think that there's also examples of moments where hierarchy can be very beneficial? Yeah. um, uh, Personally, I'm I'm averse to hierarchies, but I realize that most people actually are so sort of like used to the idea that certain 
decisions can be made much more quickly within a hierarchy, right? And yeah. certain specialties can be designated and certain organizations are much sort of more profitable and successful by having one person at the head of them, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say he brings up this example of places where there's partners, you know, like law firms where there's partners, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. everybody basically takes equal credit for things i was i mean i i think i agree with you along the way or with many points here but for instance i was having this this is a bit of a of a side note mm-hmm. i was watching this very recommendable documentary by eric baudelaire called film dramatique mm-hmm. or un film dramatique don't remember um in it he follows a group of french school kids for four years And actually, the final end edit of the movie is made out of a lot of edits of their recordings, recordings by the kids and also the conversations that they have during these four years. And despite of the fact that there's so many people contributing to this movie and the directorship has been done by a lot of teachers in the school as well, then in the end, it is Eric Baudelaire who is the director and he's credited as the director of the movie. And he's, I was I was having a discussion with someone about that, like how much did he actually do? How much can he claim that work? And that discussion led to looking into interviews with him about the work. And here he does address that despite of the work being incredibly collaborative and it's very important to credit everyone that are part of it, he is in the end the one taking the responsibility in good and bad Mm -hmm. and that there needs to be some person that make those final decisions or that the weight comes on also if things are not going as they should. And I think that is that is interesting to have in mind not of course it's different with a movie yeah 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 i the, what you're saying i think is really on point the only thing i would say is that the problem with it is that eric baudelaire to use your example continues to get the opportunities right and that might be right it might be that he has developed the expertise right but ultimately eventually maybe ideas get reproduced and new ideas aren't allowed to sort of um, emerge because a certain leader has gained all the kind of credit and continues to get the opportunities as a result of being a kind of known quantity cooperatives or you know more collectivist uh, approaches can kind of account for this problem of like there is someone that does need to direct a lot of big cooperatives have like a ceo but they just last for a couple of years, right? And they're elected by people. Uh, I don't know, like Barcelona Football Club uh, elects its um, CEO. And, you know, uh, Assemble, for instance, like they have people who have specialised roles, like there's someone who runs the office and there's someone who's sort of like the HR person, right? Perhaps that's a nuance that I just think is interesting or important to address when glorifying the the collective or... A cooperative model because I think um, these roles do exist and there are of course things that one person is more skilled at than mm-hmm. another. It's really tough because like ultimately I think you do have to sort of be very aware of what it takes to do all the other roles I think. I mean in general it's like you know your friends whose work you don't aren't at and 
you know you don't do or mm. like you don't understand you always think like what do they actually do all day like what does that involve uh, some cooperatives kind of or co collectives that we can kind of like blur the terms here <laughs> i think um are like you know they rotate roles mm -hmm. right and if they're small enough maybe someone takes it in turns to do the most boring thing because the thing is like that's another thing with organizations big organizations i think that like sometimes actually people who have maybe a bit more patience or are more capable of doing maybe boring organizational roles mm -hmm. there's a payoff that uh, entails them maybe actually eventually having more power over the organization which um isn't immediately obvious mm -hmm. and i think there is something good about a cooperative having this inbuilt idea that no no one should actually ultimately have too much control over the actual structure and how mm -hmm. it's defined and how it goes forward that there should be some sort of democratic element that defines where this goes that redistributes some tasks that are boring and maybe redistributes some tasks that are more enjoyable mm -hmm. and also acknowledges specialty as well I don't yeah know. yeah i guess Tough. also but i feel like being the one here questioning the collective model that's not to be no, sure. that's yeah, really sorry. not to be the devil's advocate or something because i think we do agree but i, I am perhaps perhaps or no surely biased because of for instance being here in the context of fanfare and having experienced I don't know, five or six years of organizational models, which have developed very much based on like a, a learning by doing. <laughs> and there, I think we often bump into having to discuss responsibilities or redefine or also accept that nothing is really fixed, but that things constantly change because you're also so dependent on your, on external, um, unpredictable elements. And um, yeah, so I think in that process, I had like definitely had have an ideal scenario of a collective system and then also a reality that sometimes reminds you that even in that collective or collaborative process, some people need to have an overview or set deadlines. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, that's, I totally agree with that. I just think that like, that person who has the overview there's like structures and models that you could introduce which mean that that expertise doesn't just disappear so that they have to rotate roles right but mm -hmm. also that they don't eventually i mean we're not talking about from far now but no, like no. It's you know in general. general like yeah some of these organizations the sort of bureaucracy involved and the i don't know the the structure eventually calcifies i suppose and uh certain people become fixed in particular roles that maybe give them more profit or give them more say on the direction that the organization takes mm -hmm. in a way that like it it becomes even more rigid over time and and means that the organization itself doesn't reproduce itself yeah or doesn't scale uh, to yeah. use the example right like uh, yeah. to use the term we introduced to the discussion which which then does bring us back to what is very collective about the structure of a sample in terms of never claiming individual work but always doing it as a collective name a sample although that it takes i think it was only like two people can carry out can accept a process a project 
and carry it out as well. And that then it's in everyone's interest, of course, that things are done well, because everyone in a way puts their name to it or are all represented within this umbrella named mm. assemble. I actually feel a little bit like the Ursula Le Guin thing. It's it's a really good example of how actually like this could work in practice and what the problems would be. There, there's a nice bit in it, for instance, where like he owns like an orange blanket and someone else sees it and is like, why have you got that? Just have a gray one. And it's sort of like he is pushing back against that. The main character throughout the whole book is like this problem. That isn't what anarchism is about. That's in a, in a way the again, another kind of calcification has happened where things have just sort of fixed in their ways. And there's a certain conservatism within the anarchist uh, society that's been set up. Anyway, I was just going to say one more thing about it. It's like there's a problem, I think, in our society with too much fixation on hierarchy and the idea that there should be a leader who controls things. No, but then perhaps I think that when I'm raising the question, it's because I think we are surrounded by like failed architecture and Fanfara and we're speaking to Slavstatas, Assemble. All these are examples of places that do work very collaboratively. And now I'm being careful with using the word collective. Mm. But I I believe that the that I can generalize and say that there's a common there's a that collaborative work and collective mindsets are regarded as a value mm. and something to mostly be aimed for as well. So actually it's because I think we find ourselves in a context where hierarchy has a negative connotation and where it's not cool to speak about the need for hierarchy in, in a lot of these cultural self-organized contexts. Yeah, but like ultimately in the end, right, a lot of these things fall apart as well. And that was kind of part of my question, this idea of the scalability of it, yeah. is that ultimately we do subordinate ourselves to some form of hierarchy in the end. We like either give up art and do work in a normal job so that we can fund our thing or we, hmm. I don't know, submit funding applications to bodies where like there is very clearly a kind of hierarchy involved and there's someone deciding and there's a level of competition involved or we i don't know work in an institution where uh teaching for instance where there's a director involved and there's a you know head of the institution who decides mm -hmm. right there, there's hierarchy everywhere and perhaps it's also not that dangerous that things are not supposed to necessarily uh, scale up mm. or continue it's also fine that and it's actually i think scale in itself is a word that we can also be slightly skeptical about the thing is as well is that the i think the big problem actually with collectives and stuff is that and and co kind of more cooperative things i think they they have a really valuable place in society and stuff but they do kind of like concentrate resources with like-minded people and i mm -hmm. think that's the case with assemble you know they all went to the same school right like mm -hmm. all, they all went to the same university mm -hmm. you know and they they probably have an affinity that makes it work right mm -hmm. and i think this is a really important point actually is that if you want actual fairness within society in general it doesn't really make sense to sort of like have these interest groups gathering together their resources and pursuing things wealth redistribution is you know something that has to happen at a sort of state level but anyway but then i think i mean now you're speaking that's that is like 
the Sound of Angels to the funding organizations who wants to hear that your public reach is as broad as possible, for instance. And I think oh, having uh, dealt with those that kind of language is also making you aware how if you aim to make everything reach the broadest possible public, then you sometimes also happen to compromise with a certain level of quality or specificity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're trying to sort of um, hit that, like those sort of, uh, like a more broad note or a general note, then you end up sort of diluting the uh, focus of the organization that you're working within. Anyway. Okay, let's go and have falafel. <laughs> <laughs> You've, You've been, been listening, listening to Fanfara Tetetet with Freya Kier and Charlie Clemos with music provided by Safian. Thank, Thank you, you for listening. listening.